Welcome to Marginally Fanish, a show where we aim an intersectional lens at some of our favorite media and their fandoms. My name is Parinita Shetty and you are listening to the 10th episode of Marginally Fanish. In this episode, I talk to Robert Shepard about the representations of dyspraxia and autism in Doctor Who, both the TV series and its online fandom. We chat about some difficult issues related to disability, specifically family, trauma and abuse, so please consider this as a content warning. Media representations of disabilities have a huge impact on people with those disabilities. The downside of seeing their disability represented on screen is that it can reify fraught relationships and troubling experiences that they recognize from their own lives. Even well-intentioned representations can have really damaging consequences. Centering the needs and desires of the family rather than the needs and desires of the person with the disability can have harmful impacts both in media and in real life. You can find examples of structural ableism not only in media but also in fandom. Fans with disabilities read themselves into characters who aren't explicitly written as disabled to counter ableist representations. The kinds of stories which are told about autism both in media and in society can perpetuate distressing eugenics narratives. Fan fiction can be an important way for fans with disabilities to assert their agency by writing their own stories. Fan fiction can challenge fixed notions of disabilities and show a different way of being human. Find our conversation about all this and more in today's episode. Happy listening. I'm so happy to have Robert Shepard on the podcast today. Robert was diagnosed with dyspraxia and autism at the age of 10 and now writes about living with both. And he has been a fairly obsessive fan of both Doctor Who and Harry Potter. He's the age where Harry was his obsession as a teenager and the doctor came along at the same time as adulthood, unlike me who grew up with Harry Potter but never grew out of it. I met Robert in Scotland about 3 years ago and we've been friends since then. Um during Jodie's first appearance as the doctor a couple of years ago Robert wrote an essay about one of the doctor's companions Ryan and how happy it made him to see some representation of dyspraxia in one of his favorite shows and the essay was great because i found it really illuminating as someone who like many others hadn't encountered dyspraxia before that and we're going to talk about that more a little bit later in the episode but before we do that Robert do you want to introduce your own experiences with disability? Hello. I'm <laughs> I'm Robert. Obviously it's hard to talk about your experiences of something like dyspraxia because you've had no experiences not having it. Mm-hmm. It's I don't know if it's technically called a developmental disorder, but it's the sort of thing that you have for life. It's not something that comes along later like maybe some disabilities can so um since i've been alive i suppose i would have difficulty picking up things doing things tying shoelaces but also kind of like being in the world and relating to it in a way that's maybe quite hard for other people to understand like in the same way as if someone has to like suddenly do a calculation that's quite complicated in their heads and suddenly find that their whole head is just frozen taking up working it out and it feels like an intense amount of work 
often things that are quite day-to-day for people like putting on your trousers take that sort of having to work something out having to use a huge amount of brain power to the point it's quite exhausting and sometimes these things happen when they're with other people and in social situations so you're like at the same time trying to do this there's another part of your brain that's starting to panic thinking "Uh oh I'm not responding in this social situation because I'm having to do this and the parts of my brain that would do that are trying to like cross this road and now I'm trying to make a joke because I'm crossing the road and there's a car over there and now I've been run over sort of thing Mm. so I guess that's my experience of being alive which might be different to the experience of of being alive to someone who doesn't have dyspraxia if that makes sense yeah absolutely and I really appreciate you sharing even that little bit because I know it's such a weird question like you said it's something you've been living with yeah your experience with it is you basically don't know any other experience of being in the world no for me it's also really helpful and again this is something that I've come across a lot that it's always on the burden of well any marginalized identity but like (laughs) here because we're talking about disability a person with disabilities to explain themselves Mm. because otherwise the world is so neurotypical and able-bodied like that's what the norm is considered to be so everyone has to explain if they're not they don't fit in with the norm well I guess obviously I am on the autistic spectrum as well and that's like quite common for people with dyspraxia to be like either have a lot of traits that are associated with the spectrum or actually have a spectrum diagnosis but I guess the extent to which it's physical stuff and the extent to which it's stuff more typically associated with autism's not always clear to me either so I guess the extent to which it's both physical and mental and that boundary not really existing I remember actually um that when they were doing promotion for um Jodie Whittaker's first season of Doctor Who uh with Ryan who is dyspraxic Um, they said that was something that they'd really tried to make sure was the case, that they were considering the mental as well as the physical attributes of dyspraxia, which Mm. um, at the time I appreciated and then later on had some concerns about. But I think the extent to which it's not just dropping things, but significantly more of that isn't always understood if dyspraxia is understood at all which it's often not because it's not talked about much at all. Yeah, which is why thank you again so much for being willing to share your experiences about it. And I'm glad that you are because I'm hoping that not just me, I'm learning about it from you and I've learned a lot from our conversations before that, but hopefully people who listen to this podcast will as well. And I, especially because for me, it's very much like an outsider perspective. I haven't been personally identified with any disability, so I have huge blind spots around it. Most of my friends are um, non-disabled as well. But it's something that I'm thinking about now a lot more since I moved to the UK and also a few of my friends in India are, are a lot more vocal about talking about different kinds of disabilities. So it's been an education for me. As well as I think on the internet at large, at least the sort of spaces that I inhabit, there's a lot more conversations about disabilities, just in general and especially now during the pandemic. I think mental health and mental disabilities have been a huge topic of conversation. So it's something that I appreciate because I know it's a blind spot and I'm trying to educate myself through other people's experiences. 
and in india i think mental health services are not yet mainstream enough though there are more advocates working on it and working to raise awareness about the need to have mental health services so it's it's still an uphill battle but we're getting there and mm. we've chatted about this a little bit before about our very different experiences in terms of disabilities in our families and how it was seen so would you like to chat about that a little bit yes i mean it's quite a long story or, or a lot of long stories my family and my mother particularly i don't know was ever entirely comfortable with um my having uh what was then referred to as asperger's syndrome and would now be considered autism because asperger's syndrome is no longer considered distinct from autism mm. but i think she always had kind of an image of me as a fairly or wanting a child who was fairly what she saw as normal so liked football was good at football uh went around doing laddish things and mm. um, because i was like simultaneously very bad at all sports and had no interest in those laddish things i think that was often quite challenging for her and so a lot of what she did in a well-intentioned way to try and make me what she would see as better involved effectively trying to cure me of things that are i suppose fairly fundamental as we've said that i can't really conceive of not being part of myself so mm -hmm. um as a child i would spend a long time like going and to various places and doing various things with no scientific basis in them to i think explicitly try and cure me of dyspraxia and cure me of autism and eventually when i was a teenager she would like do things like hire a shaman for me to come and try and cure me with shamanism mm. and that well it didn't work which which i'm pleased about now but my mother uh is disabled herself she has uh, multiple sclerosis which is a degenerative condition and it got steadily worse throughout my adulthood and her relation to disability is a huge part of her identity as well and both our disabilities her ex-husband found particularly challenging and our relationship ended up being quite fraught because of it and i suppose for context in doctor who series 11 ryan who is the character with dyspraxia has his own fraught relationship with his step step grandfather graham and the extent to which it was it was similar enough i suppose to my own experiences that it was quite challenging to watch perhaps because it was almost like well not like i was experiencing exactly what happened to me but i could see enough of what happened to me in it that it was quite difficult yeah and we've spoken about trigger warnings like just <laughs> for this podcast as well and i suppose that's not something maybe the creators of doctor who thought about when they were trying to represent Ryan's dyspraxia in a way that was realistic and they didn't think about the effect it would have on 
perhaps an audience with dyspraxia themselves and like having a fraught relationship with their families, which yeah, I know we'll talk about it a little bit later as well. But yeah, I'm just wondering in terms of, you know, the difference between intent and impact where your yes. intentions might be good, but the impact can still be really damaging. Yeah, I mean... I guess it, it was very difficult for me because I think Ryan is genuinely the only explicit example of representation of a dyspraxic person in fiction, and maybe even non-fiction I can think of. Like dyspraxia is such a almost non-existent condition that to like criticise the way it's portrayed at all is something I was unsure about. But I think the things that bothered me about, first of all, like in the first episodes, Ryan's step um, grandfather Graham says something like, I can't remember the exact line, but it's like he implies that because of Ryan's, like Ryan is like worried because he's caused an alien invasion. And then uh, Graham is like, oh, you're going to blame the dyspraxia on that as well. Mm-hmm. And I guess the implication there obviously is like all the time that these things are going wrong for Ryan, then he's saying it's my dyspraxia, but it's not actually if he'd had strength of will or tried hard enough, he would have been able to overcome these things that are in fact not possible to overcome because they are a disability. And when I saw that the first time, I thought, well, this is something that will have happened because in the future, in this series, we will uh, be led to see that this isn't the case. In actual fact, the way he said this is wrong, but I don't think that really happens at all. And if anything, the reverse kind of happens in that Graham's expectations of Ryan, like who Ryan should be for him. He wants Ryan to respect him and to see him as a legitimate father fig or grandfather figure. Um, and he wants him to understand him without necessarily understanding how his own perception of Ryan's dyspraxia might be affecting him or discussing that. And the fact that that was sort of almost that sort of active ableism was in there and then not really addressed later on bothered me quite a bit. Like Russell T. Davis uh, in season one of Doctor Who in 2005, there's like a scene where like Rose, uh, who's the companion then, uses um, gay just as a like joking way, as in that awful thing is so gay. Mm -hmm. Because obviously he's gay himself and he's like thinking, well, I want to deliberately do this to reflect that this thing is... Um, still wrong and uncomfortable but it's also something people do and I want to reflect this to make it clear that Rose Tyler is a real person but sort of that level of being confident that the author has actively thought about it and talked about it off camera is not really a sense I got from this example later on and also I don't feel like it was criticized in the same way because I know that a lot of people a lot of people who were gay said, like, we understand what you're trying to do here, but this is still representing this sort of thing is still damaging because it implicitly says to people watching that this character who we identify with is doing things that are, are OK, that we can do as well. And potentially it's a gateway to behaviour that, that's much worse. Like, I'm, I'm not in contact with my stepfather anymore, but, like, I often thought afterwards that 
if we had been in contact, he would um, maybe use this example of sort of laughing about able, sort of making a joke of not being able to do things as an example that our relationship was all right, really. And I was like, but but it's not all right, really. Mm. Um, and this sort of example that is dominated by his perspective gives me, as the dyspraxic person, no way to really say, I'm not comfortable with this, what you're doing doing isn't right for me and like I'm not sure that's a place Ryan ever really gets to or something he's ever able to really say and the fact that hasn't happened in the only representation of dyspraxia that exists ended up making me quite uncomfortable. Yeah and it's like (laughs) something that you expect to give you comfort like whether it be your favorite TV show or book or fantasy fictional world or your family. That's so much more, I think, it leaves you so much more hurt. Like something I've not shared on the podcast before or indeed with many of my friends either was my childhood experience with an alcoholic father who beat up my mother and he gambled away much of his and my mother's money away. And this alcoholism was inherited. So from his dad, they had a similar relationship as well, his parents. And just, you know, how the cycles of abuse continue. And I don't know explicitly how this has impacted me and my own interactions with people because I've not been to therapy or I've not, you know, sort of examined this aspect of my life. But I feel like this sort of childhood experience does leave scars because there has been a lot of trauma with related to this even otherwise. And when I was away from the situation, a few years and a few years had passed, I realized how much he would have benefited from therapy and just being able to, I don't know, like, you know, like your stepfather or maybe your mother just having to talk to the other person and having a equal and respectful exchange of, you know, opinions and perspectives. But I think this complex intersection of addiction and ideas of masculinity and mental health not being considered important in India means that he never would have approached the idea of therapy. Like that's not something he would have, it would have ever occurred to him. And it's just, there's like, there's such a, close experience with physical violence and fear and trauma which for me now still like domestic violence and just things of that nature it it's not a trigger as such but it does like it's something I don't like to think about just because I want to sort of move on with my life I guess I don't know I don't know how healthy that is but it's something that And of course, my mother was impacted by it much more than I was. But I think childhood experiences like that shape you in a way that you don't really even realize, except, I guess, with therapy. But for me, books in general, but Harry Potter in particular, was very important while I was growing up because it was this sort of escape from real life. Like my parents divorced when I was 13, but even after that, being raised by a single mom with not much money was difficult. So Harry Potter was very much a gateway. And that's why now, even with all the problematic things that um, J.K. Rowling has said, and all the holes that we find in Harry Potter on this podcast and in fandom in general, I still can't let go of Harry Potter because, you know, for me, it was that comfort. But then the fact that 
the person who created this world mm-hmm. has let us down so much is what is more like it's something that was supposed to provide me with and it did provide me with comfort and hope and everything yeah so like with doctor who with you as well that's more i think yeah it's sadder yeah yeah no no totally i think obviously there's a definitely an extent which I, I guess my experience with doctor who is like i didn't really know what doctor who was till it the new series i knew it's 15 years old now but like the revised series in 2005 came along where i was like 17 almost 18 and that was an extremely difficult time in my life because uh my parents were having a very traumatic divorce and my mother was about to tell us all that uh, she had multiple sclerosis because her health was was visibly declining. And I remember a lot about it being very powerful for me then. But I think something I've found challenging, obviously there's a difference in that Doctor Who doesn't have a single creator in the way Harry Potter does. Mm-hmm. And like if someone came along and said, is Snape from Brazil? <laughs> then... Yeah. And asked J.K. Rowling, she could say, no, but if someone said, is there a Dalek under the sea, then there's no one you can really ask that to give an authoritative Mm. response or whatever. I think what I would relate to is maybe more with the fandom community in particular, in that while I think a lot of stuff that made Doctor Who comforting for me is related to autism or being on the spectrum, often I found... Um, my experiences in Doctor Who fandom to be the least inclusive and most actively, maybe not quite discriminatory, but definitely uncomfortable experiences I've had in relation to being autistic. Do you mean online fandom? I do, yes, because I've not really had any experience with non-online fandom, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So yes, um, specifically, I think online forums, although some of stuff and some stuff I saw on Twitter recently and beforehand, but haven't really engaged with as much. So yeah, definitely stuff that would happen a lot on social media, but which, which does precede social media as well, because as something for nerdy people, Doctor Who has a, a very long internet history that goes back significantly further than that. Yeah, and with Doctor Who, like you, I also discovered it through the new, well, 15-year-old Who, the revival, but not when it first came out. It was, I think, a few years ago that I started watching the new series because Doctor Who had always been on my radar, but I always thought I would have to go back to the 60s show and watch Mm. everything to make it make sense. And I tried and I couldn't do it. I tried watching the very first um, season and I watched a few episodes and I just couldn't get into it. (laughs) I was like, nope, I I can't do this. Life is too short. I'm just going to go with Christopher Eccleston and that's where I'm going to start. And I loved it. But I've heard about this with Doctor Who fandom online that it has been very white male able-bodied you know sort of dominated the fandom has been dominated by that and it's been very not inclusive to well I've heard about women but like you're (laughs) saying with yeah disabilities as well luckily for me I've just encountered I think it's just the spaces that I very purposefully sort of visit in terms of fandom 
it has been mostly positive like not just with doctor who but with harry potter as well because harry potter also has some really problematic elements within the mm-hmm. fandom as well again this is all from through research and what i've spoken to other people personally i've had i think i just move around the internet and life generally with blinkers on so like all the yeah, yeah. it's you know i'm not which is good that's how i cope but yeah it's it's really interesting i guess but also yeah. sad to hear about other yeah. experiences that don't mirror my own yeah i guess if there is a difference it would be that well it would be like absolutely uncontroversial that Doctor Who fandom had been terrible to women and to people who weren't white and to basically everyone who wasn't a white man. To say that you found it discriminatory to autistic people I think would be quite a bold thing to say because obviously Doctor Who is off like archetype archetypally associated with autistic people it's something that autistic people latch on to as say as an autistic person that your own experience of the fandom has been very negative specifically around things that manifest as a result of that condition and sometimes explicitly around having that condition is something that i think people would probably not be uh, be more reluctant to accept whereas if i thought if i think you said if you said doctor who fandom is sexist or racist people Mm -hmm. would probably have significantly that would be a significantly less controversial statement i think so do you think the ableism in the doctor who fandom is like is it something that's understood by the fandom like is it something that's being done very explicitly or is it you know sort of like structural ableism I think yeah I think it would be far more I think it would be far more structural than intentional just Mm -hmm. that in practice the things that you would mock maybe or the things that you would insult would be things that are overwhelmingly things that are more likely to happen to someone who is autistic like if someone is incredibly obsessive about Doctor Who and obviously if someone has a special interest as an autistic person, Doctor Who is disproportionately a special interest they might end up having, then that would be something which would be widely mocked. Or I think something I've thought about a bit is finding Doctor Who important is something that's deeply taboo within Doctor Who fandom. And I wonder if that is structurally challenging for autistic people in a weird way, because Often I think autistic people would find Doctor Who important because becoming invested in a special interest to a huge extent is something that's quite fundamental and quite distressing if it's invalidated, I suppose, or if it's not seen to be important. So I think when people say, because this object, well, from an outside perspective, is not important at all, like um, it's caring that the button is on the wrong way on 1966 version of the TARDIS console is clearly not as important for social justice as more or less anything else at all. And so I think if for reasons that make sense within an autistic lens, it is something that's that's a passionate concern to you, it would still be very taboo to say this matters to me and it distresses me that you say that it doesn't matter. I think it's that sort of mm. thing where the validity perhaps of autistic 
special interest statistic experiences are not only not understood but actively mocked and marginalized that i think is a real problem in doctor who fandom has been basically forever and it has concerned me recently that well obviously doctor has made huge strides probably literally everywhere else the idea that this might be a problem should be addressed and that continually continuing to talk in this way in that because the way people are reacting can't be understood by you as a non-neurodivergent person therefore not only are they not valid they're things that deserve to be mocked to a point that is probably bullying is something that made me increasingly uncomfortable with with Doctor Who fandom over the last many years I would say. Yeah, that's really interesting because some of the sort of conversations that I've come across just in fandom in general, not Doctor Who specifically, is, um, well, it's more through the lens of gender where um, transformative fandom in a large, like sort of large spaces of the internet and fan studies as well, the field, is seen to be more of uh, like female fans and it's there domain I guess whereas the male expression of fandom is seen to be like this you know obsessive knowledge of everything within the within the series or within the media or whatever so you know something like you were saying which is having this like detailed knowledge about a very specific (laughs) hyper-focused aspect of the show would be something that would be seen as a male thing but then the sort of discourse that I've encountered has been male gatekeeping for like against you know women and female fans but what you're what you've spoken about I think is a really interesting and really important aspect as well to look at it because yeah you're not then talking about even within like it's just this sort of male female binary and not the nuances within the male sort of fanishness as well yeah I would almost obviously have created a lot of fan stuff myself mm-hmm. but I think a lot of the time when I did that it almost was because of like this deep sense of how I thought things should be specifically for me to be comfortable with them so like I guess I would see the idea of like obsessively arranging things to be a certain way and being actively creative the idea that those things are necessarily opposed is one that would be quite strange to me I guess and I think like from the fan fiction I've read often when people write fan fiction it is almost out of a sense of needing to order things and often it's ordering Mm. things from a character perspective but I think like wanting to make things a certain way because you feel like a character's behaved inconsistently and that's wrong Mm -hmm. and wanting to make things a certain way because the props are wrong in an episode are not I don't know that they're completely different things necessarily even though one is about more about people and one is more about I guess they're both about ways in which you perceive the world and relate to them and they're both out of a desire to make it fit better around how you understand it to be so and I also this, I yeah. think representing an aspect that you're seeing missing in canon like something that you want to see represented and fixed or whatever so I I suppose like fans from any marginalized identities write would write fan fiction 
to be able to counter that singular narrative, if that makes sense. Oh, definitely. Yes. De- I mean, I think maybe Doctor Who is unusual in that that would also overwhelmingly apply to the show itself. Like the show itself is almost like a aggressive commentary on itself over ages mm-hmm. saying this hasn't been right before and now we need to fix it in various different and uh incompatible ways especially the new one yes more, yeah, more totally. than anything else yeah yeah also i wanted to go back to um your new short story in the stim anthology where you said that it had featured selkies as a metaphor for difference. And I was really interested in, yeah, finding out more about that. So a few years ago, I read uh, Sophia Samatar's story, Selkie Stories Are For Losers, which is explicitly about um, someone who it's strongly implied, but maybe not the case, that her mother is a selkie. Um, and that she's had a difficult life because she's been abused by men. And the whole story is about the idea that in Selkie stories, usually what happens is a Selkie who is a seal um, who takes off their skin to become a person, and often in stories a woman, ends up like going to sleep with a fisherman. The fisherman steals the Selkie's skin. The Selkie then can't get back into their skin and is stuck in human form and then the selkie has to be his wife and has a miserable time yeah not problematic at all yes well that's what the story's about (laughs) i guess is that uh the selkie as a story is almost always about being stuck in someone else's world in like a horrible role you didn't choose and not really getting to be the center of the story or to have any kind of power or agency mm-hmm. yourself and I thought that the idea of having that as a metaphor for autism was something that appealed to me because I've often felt like in order to function in the world at all I've had to uh put away a lot of stuff about myself and pretend it wasn't there or often try and make it so it was no longer there and end up having a miserable time basically for other people in their stories. And I thought I thought writing a story explicitly about that with that metaphor would be quite useful for me. Because Stim is an anthology of non-fiction and fiction, and they were like, oh my God, we, we don't have any fiction. So they accepted open pitches for it. And then I was like, well, this story is very odd, and I doubt it'll get accepted, but I'll pitch anyway. And then they were like, wow, this story is exactly what we're looking for. <laughs> and I was surprised by that. And now it's in the, st- now it's in the book. That's yeah. amazing. And I think that what the the fa- Doctor Who fanfic that you suggested I read, the one that you'd written, which name I'm completely blanking on. I well, tried looking it up. Yeah. No, yeah. I yeah. It's called uh it's called Never Change, but Never Change. That's I, I I really struggled with coming up with it. All the other ones that I'd written I came up with a title very easily, but that one I was like, I have no idea what to call this, so I can understand. <laughs> No, but what I found interesting, like from what you said about uh, your Selkie short story, but also when we were talking about the story briefly or fanfic, you said that you hadn't been thinking about it in terms of disability specifically when you were writing it. But a lot of what you've said today and what we've spoken about otherwise, 
as well as your short story i feel like as a reader from the outside who is reading it for the first time i could feel a lot of those themes coming in especially like you know the whole the i don't understand like everyone <laughs> saying that and again this is not something i think i would have understood had these conversations not been at the forefront now like about disabilities and neurodiversity and things because again as someone from this outsider sort of dominant culture this blind spot means that unless it is explicit i guess or unless it is placed in context i wouldn't get it because it doesn't reflect my experiences but like i loved the fanfic anyway just as a story like it was really i think it captured jodi the doctor jodi's i don't know how you what you refer to them as whatever the 13th doctor i think she's the 13th doctor yeah well it's yes. very confusing now I, we were all we, were, we had a nerd nerd quiz and the nerd quiz had a furious debate about that for about half an hour but yeah, yes. I can imagine. Yes, <laughs> but I feel like it captured that character so well. Like I could see her saying these things, but uh, like because I was also reading it in preparation for this episode, and it's something that I link to in the transcript. It's like I could feel that aspect come through so much that you can't divorce your identity from what you're writing, even if you're not meaning to write about your identity oh. if that makes sense but oh yeah my God, was, yes yeah <laughs> that was yeah but uh, so some, just going back to Ryan a little bit so i've heard this critique by other people as well who write about disabilities and i think it came up in a couple of the podcast episodes that we listened to where the family or the friend of the person with the disability centered in the narrative rather than the person with the disability themselves and not just in fiction but also with i think marissa lingen uh, said in the breaking the glass slipper episode where even charities that happens or was it the witch please episode well one of them that even charities a lot of them tend to focus on the families or the caregivers rather than the person with the disability themselves which i think like going back to ryan and grim I was thinking about it not from your perspective but just as someone who's learning about dyspraxia through Ryan it seems to come up like in the first few episodes and then on and off later but then it it just seems to have disappeared like there doesn't seem to have been any mention of that later unless I'm misremembering no I don't I don't think there is I don't think there is much later I think it very much um, I mean, I had to watch less and less of it because I found it genuinely impossible to watch because I got, like, too invested in Ryan as a character. I was just like, oh, no, he looks so unhappy. <laughs> and I was just like, because this is obviously an escapist show predominantly, mm-hmm. when someone you strongly identify with appears in an escapist show and looks like he wants to escape from the escapist show, <laughs> it yeah. becomes quite challenging to watch so I mean I personally as I always felt like I don't know how you say his name that's terrible Tozen Cole who plays Ryan has like his acting's been criticized a lot but personally I felt like it was really good I felt like he was like portraying someone with dyspraxia accurately to the point I found it uncomfortable to watch I was like oh my mm. god that's me on there looking awkward and sad 
I yeah. forgotten the question. Uh, no, that, that's, <laughs> that's fine. No, I think you answered it. I've forgotten the question. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it just made me think of something else, which is like Ryan as a black man in England. I feel like that intersection could have been explored as well. Like, you know, disability and how other factors impact it as well. Like, I don't know. I think he's from a working class background as well. I'm not, yeah, I think. So, you know, the race, the gender, the disability, there could have been, like, because as a man, maybe he's, like, privileged in certain contexts. But, you know, I don't know how it, like, in terms of disability discourse in general, I know that, well, through these fan podcasts that we listen to as well, that they spoke about how white men in certain contexts seem to be privileged over others but then there are nuances in that as well right so I think I feel like there could have been more interesting possibilities that may still be explored but I I believe Ryan is I don't know how true this rumor is but I think he's leaving at the end of the next leaving at the end of the next episode yeah so I don't think there is any room for exploration no yeah it's Christmas episode or New Year's episode I don't think that's going to happen but apart from Ryan you were also excited about Jodie Whittaker being the doctor right? Yeah no for like a few reasons like I found the last doctor Peter Capaldi very challenging as though and to be honest it took me a very very long time to see him as the doctor Mm. um more so than really any of the others, I think. And I think looking back on it, it's because like the Doctor's transformation from someone who's relatively uh, warm and young to someone who's relatively cold and difficult mm-hmm. reminds me of my own experiences with my mother as she grew older. And then like I was like, oh no, I don't want... It's weird, like when... Jodie was cast as the Doctor, I retrospectively realised that on some level I'd always seen the Doctor as a, like, maternal figure, Mm. even though the Doctor had always been a man. And it always felt, like, intrinsically right to me that the Doctor would be a woman. And so, like, when the Doctor actually became a woman, I was really, really excited. And then um, when I watched the movie Adult's Life Skills, which Jodie is in I got even more excited because I was like in that movie she plays a character who I don't know if she in the context of the movie is on the spectrum but she very very much reminded me of me as someone who was and someone who's like awkward in the open there's like an opening scene where she tries to microwave her bra because it's wet and then the bra catches fire and the microwave explodes Mm -hmm. and like, oh my God, I would totally do that if I was a woman. And I was like, I saw myself in her character more than I think I had any character ever before. And I felt she was able to act with a sort of dignity in that role and to like treat someone who's like kind of weird and finds relating to the world difficult as still a real human person in a way that's depressingly rare perhaps among actors so I had a huge amount of respect for her as an actor for treating the role with respect I suppose and for being able to convey that. Yeah and I find it really interesting that you um, read yourself into that character even though she wasn't explicitly written as 
like dyspraxic or autistic and it's something that i think in the witch please episode they mentioned as well where fans read themselves like fans with disabilities neurodiverse fans read themselves into characters in harry potter because harry potter yeah. is something that i know better than doctor who i love both but harry yeah. potter is something that's been closer and it's something that i never would have it would never have occurred to me but for example hermione where they read hermione and both luna uh, hermione and luna is autistic yeah. hermione for being i think socially awkward and she doesn't fit in but she has like this obsessive knowledge about all the things that she decides to learn and luna who talks without considering social cues and doesn't conform to normative ideas and conversations and she's dismissed for that exactly that and newt scamander i believe also from the fantastic mm. beast fandom has read him as neurodiverse as well which i find really interesting because i think in which please they said that often fans do this and i don't know if this uh, reflects your own experiences but because fa- when creators especially creators who don't have disabilities themselves set out to write a character with a disability they fall prey to certain ableist ideas or mm-hmm. you know sort of promote certain ableist ideas whereas when fans are reading themselves into a character who isn't written as a disabled character it's just they can then then see their whole like sort of complex and nuanced identity reflected in that character yeah i think i think that i had a bit of that myself when um, Matt Smith was the doctor mm. because among dyspraxic people there was a tendency to read Matt Smith as the dyspraxic which I think has been confirmed as not being intentional mm. but a lot of what he does in terms of falling over and causing messes and thinking he's being cool and impressive but is actually causing a disaster oh. is quite resonant to people who have dyspraxia so um we've definitely done a bit of reading that in to things ourselves in the dyspraxia doctor who community such as it is and i like used to like imagine imagining how his doctor and ryan might work together and how it might make ryan have a bit more fun and maybe his doctor be a bit more responsible yeah that's true oh i should have you you should write fanfic about that i was oh, like yeah. i should read fanfic <laughs> i would love to read your fanfic <laughs> but you also mentioned an overlap with uncomfortable narratives around autism and how autism and dyspraxia often come together goes back to what we were um talking about in terms of when things are portrayed um by family members because like the fact of a disability or a marginalized identity being portrayed almost exclusively with children and almost exclusively by the people who live with them or care for them rather than the people themselves is something that is very very common in autism and maybe even more in dyspraxia but because i would say it is autism liberation is a lot more advanced than dyspraxia liberation and because conversely the autism non-liberation it's also more advanced in a terrifying way i think if something like ryan's narrative had been attempted with autism there would be a substantial amount of criticism of it in a way that I don't think there has been because it was dyspraxia mm-hmm. um because of autism speaks of course who are for people who don't know a charity american-based who 
I think is the premier autism charity in America, but who also literally campaigns for the eradication of autism. Like they mm. fund research into eugenics. Yeah. So genes that are responsible for autism can be removed from the human race. And whose campaigning is very much around the concept and the idea that autistic people aren't worthy and the challenges families face are um what's I guess the most important aspect of something like autism rather than the legitimacy I guess of people who are autistic themselves um I think that's much 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 more extreme than anything that's happened in any portrayal of dyspraxia I wouldn't want to suggest otherwise but I do I guess that the reason that autistic people are uncomfortable about things being centred on family members is because once our own voices become marginalised and once our own humanity begins to be diminished, it does, I guess, leave us open to narratives that are abusive and leaves it more difficult to counter abuse when it happens to us, even if that abuse is nowhere near that extreme. And I think that's something that we probably need to talk about more I don't know if there even is a dyspraxia but if when people talk about (laughs) dyspraxia more because they don't really I think the concept of dyspraxia liberation in that way I don't even know that it exists really but I think fundamentally reclaiming stories is as essential in dyspraxia as it would be for autism and that would be true even if they weren't often in people at the same time because otherwise we're marginalising our own stories and that's a very painful thing to experience in a story, probably whoever you are. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something I think, so taking it like the importance of this representation in science fiction and fantasy, um, uh, there was this essay that we read the future is not disabled and the writer they were talking about exactly what you said but in terms of science fiction about how in science fiction in these futuristic technologically advanced worlds seem to have no room for autistic characters or any kind of disabilities in general and are not using technology as access like you know they said that there would there's so many potentials and possibilities of using technology in creative ways in your words to show how people with disabilities and it's just a different way of being it's not a like deficient way of being it's just a different way of being and basically science fiction and fantasy relies on either technological or magical eugenics essentially Mm. like you know they're yeah erasing any kind of disabilities from their future or their fantastical world which is also really problematic yes you saying that has made me realize that's why i've been uncomfortable for so long with um humanism as it's commonly portrayed in science fiction because it is often overwhelmingly about erasing things that don't fit the writer's idea of what being human is Mm. and putting things into a narrow perspective that I guess I've always felt has excluded me and often I guess taking as an assumption a centered world that 
to me as an outsider seems quite different from how I would perceive the world to be and in places to be obviously wrong. Because I guess that's probably true of, of any marginalised person, is that if they were to read a non-marginalised person's account of parts of the world they've experienced, there would be things about it that are, are obviously wrong just because of that person's own, own ignorance of it. Yeah. And I guess when I, this sort of science fiction I enjoy and the sort I try to create would probably usually be about explicitly challenging that sort of idea that that's what the future is or has to be or that something that ends up looking like that is progress or anything like it because I guess it comes back to the idea of always being told that a progressed world is a world which has eradicated you and being able having the self-confidence to say that is wrong yeah I and like I know that has I mean, it has this movement with disabilities and also Afrofuturism, I believe. Like, that's the same sort of movement that came to be because of the erasure of black bodies and black lives and mm. black culture in the future. Because, yeah, obviously, yeah, there's no... Or unless it's, like, it's a, still a racist society. Like, it's 3,000 years from now, but racism mm-hmm. still exists and ableism mm-hmm. still exists. So, yeah, that's great. But, so, you mentioned, like, talking about your own writing... So even though Never Change was not about disability, you said that you realized it had become an unintentional inversion of Ryan's story? Yes. I realized while I was writing it that that story is way more autobiographical than probably any of the other stories I've written are. Like, it's about a young man whose whole family... Um, regenerates because a regeneration bomb goes off at his house and then um, they become completely different people who don't remember him and they want him to turn into a completely different person as well in order to satisfy them and in the story um, the main character's mother is someone who's found the world very challenging is I think someone who's legitimately has real problems that Mm -hmm. need real support and that she has relied very heavily on his son her son but something that was quite important in it is like in this story to regenerate into someone else you lose everything about who you are like you literally become another person and that other person is happy but they don't have any memory of you or any resemblance to you really you lose everything about you that's important to you and the end of the story is ultimately about the main character saying I don't want to do this and saying that the main character rejecting that is okay which is honestly not a message I would expect to see in Doctor Who because there's a way in which it feels quite at odds with the narrative which often is about people sacrificing themselves for other people mm-hmm. and maybe an assumption that they have to, even in cases like Ryan's where often it feels like he's sacrificing himself for someone who's got significantly more power and privilege than he does. Yeah. Um, and for their expectations and thoughts without really much consideration being given to to them, to him. Mm-hmm. So I guess that sort of having a character stand up and say I'm going to do this thing 
for myself that is explicitly selfish in this way was something that simultaneously felt like it was important to have a story about but also felt like it was something very taboo to say like pretty much all the Doctor Who fan fiction I wrote was stuff that I thought an actual Doctor Who episode would never be able to do or never be willing to do but stuff Mm. that I felt was still true and important to say and I think that sort of someone who is in a vulnerable position asserting their own needs and asserting those own boundaries with the knowledge of destructive consequences was a story I felt should be told somewhere even if it would have to be in a fan fiction that people don't read no I'm so glad that you did because I think something like like you said it's something that maybe might reach someone that doesn't see this in canon like I think a lot of fan fiction not only has the potential to do that but does do that where things that you're missing out and that's where a lot of fan fiction starts from as well that where you're not seeing this in canon in your favorite world you want to fix it or not fix it I guess but just you know yeah challenge those notions and those ideas and make up your own like still play around in that world but yeah I, I guess I would I've always felt of it as like being able to say that these things you think should be true are true somewhere mm. and so it's not necessarily because you think how things are in canon is is wrong or because how you do them would be better but because you need them to be true somewhere oh I love that, that idea yeah I love that idea yeah. and it also like is different you know in terms of who's reading it different yeah. people might get different things out of it as well yeah. like when I was reading your fic which I loved and it made me think of just different expressions of trauma not just in your fic itself like the way that the characters engage with like different kinds of traumatic experiences but also in Doctor Who in general and Harry Potter like I was recently re-watching the first the Christopher Eccleston series of Doctor Who and when I'd first watched it I do and was my first encounter with Doctor Who I didn't I think realize how traumatized he was his character like I know he dropped hints about Gallifrey being destroyed and you know or like him believing Gallifrey is destroyed and him being like a sort of refugee of war and him being the last doctor or the last time lord and but just the trauma that he carries and the way that it impacts on his whole life even though Rose sees him in a certain way like and everyone else sees him in a certain way because he has these I don't know if I'm saying this coherently but he has these the both lightness and darkness in him at the same time like the way that he engages with the world which I thought was really very sad because I I think like in a lot of Doctor Who conversations David Tennant and Matt Smith's Doctor seem to be the most popular and well Jodie now because she's awesome but Christopher Eccleston because he was only there for one season and I think the actor left on not very good terms with no. Yeah, but his doctor is very much sidelined, I think. Um, just in conversations, which I understand, but I thought it like it just struck me as so profoundly sad, his character, especially like he's only there 
for a season and then that made me start thinking about trauma in harry potter as well because of all these conversations that make me see these like when i go to these worlds again it makes me see these characters in new ways and it's something that this uh, we've spoken about in a previous episode where harry potter's ptsd is something that i never caught like mm. I, i would never have had the knowledge or the tools or resources to identify that myself but in fandom the conversations that yeah that have just sort of given me this new lens to view the character and then again i reread philosopher's stone and i'm currently reading chamber of secrets and just the dursley's abuse like forget his parents and what other things happened with voldemort and sirius and everything like to come but even when he's 11 and 12 like the kind of abusive household that he's lived in it's very royal dalisk like i think mm. that's what jk rolling was going for but i think in one of the fan podcasts that i listened to the gaily prophet they said that in royal dal it's usually very quickly like the narrator is you know sort of shows is very much shows themselves on the child side which jk rolling mm. does as well but then the child immediately starts well not immediately but soon starts countering and challenging the adult abuse whereas harry he has to live with them for another like we meet him when he's 10 mm, and yes. he lives with them till he's 17 he has to keep going back to this abusive household for yeah, yeah. like whatever a reason that he doesn't know and that's that makes it so much more difficult and dobby as well like i'm re- in chamber of secrets i've just met dobby again yeah, yeah. and the accounts of self harm that he does and just his sense of identity and inferiority and he's like so happy and so grateful for just the kindest uh, the smallest semblance of kindness mm-hmm. from harry like the most basic like decent behavior and yeah it just it, it was yeah it was just how trauma has such Yeah. different and complex impacts on mental well-being and it's something that well i've been thinking of more now than ever because with the pandemic and the lockdown in india and the uk and like in different parts of the world the whole world is going through this collective trauma and dealing with it in so many different ways like i'm dealing with it in so many different ways in ways like i prefer not to examine my trauma so i like <laughs> cope with like work or books or media or whatever but yeah that's also a coping mechanism i guess but it's just it's something that's now so much more in my mind at the forefront of my mind yeah. i mean yes i mean as someone who's had a lot of trauma i found in some ways the pandemic to be quite liberating because everyone being traumatized and talking about it all the time made me feel much more normal and comfortable in the world so that was quite nice and the idea that then i would be able to like or like fiction in general would be exploring these things much more because they would be experiences that were so common and widely known was something that was almost like oh my god now everyone sees the world the same way as me yeah. that makes me feel less exhausted somehow which doesn't mean that I'm glad it's happened because no. it means a lot of people are having awful experiences that feel like awful experiences I've had but I guess it does feel like I guess these things we're talking about are likely to become much more I mean I don't know what speculative fiction becomes after this like mm-hmm. it's very like, I was just I was thinking like Doctor Who itself how does something like Doctor Who where someone travels through time and space handle 
the whole future changing very suddenly and like because the character is fictional not obviously the character never said hey how about that coronavirus that changes everything <laughs> but then obviously yeah. when you come back you have to say there's been this coronavirus that changes everything yeah. and that whole sort of changing what the future is and what speculative fiction is is quite well hopefully leads to some positive things and not just negative ones I should have said that more positively (laughs) yeah no I for me it has been more positive and of course this comes from a huge position of privilege because I don't have to worry about money because I'm like on a university scholarship and they're continuing to pay me and I have a house I can buy groceries I can like I even have access to parks like I don't have a garden but I can go to parks and you know in socially distant distanced ways and go out and I can bake and cook and things whereas in India like I know in the UK there's like a lot of different bad contacts in the US as well like that's in the news but in India oh my god it's just so much everything's so much worse Mm -hmm. because like there are so many really dispossessed people who don't have access to even the basic things that they need and there are no systems in place to fix that like whereas in the UK or other developed nations there are so of course this all comes from a huge place of privilege but at the same time I really like seeing this you know like this feeling of community I guess where like you said you feel like you're not going through this yourself that's what's giving me a little bit of comfort as well that everybody is trying to you know in terms of even like art because I'm in the children's books industry yes a lot of writers are coming and you know reading out their books daily like some of my favorite writers are doing this and trying to add some joy in a world which seems devoid of it and you know just (laughs) trying to like yeah have some hope and comfort which gives me hope and comfort like you know this sort of meme that's going around that everybody thought that a dystopia would be like looting and you know uh, just (laughs) violence and whatever and people are just baking and cooking and like putting out more art in the world which again very privileged view And I know this is like in some parts of the world, this is happening. Like the dystopia is and was present. But I'm speaking from my experience. And that's what's hopefully like, you know, just these conversations, not just about trauma and like other things, but the broken systems. And, you know, that's so much more in relief now that I hope that gets fixed in the future. I don't know. This is just I'm an optimist. Maybe so, but I'm just, yeah. Yeah. Oh no, I was just thinking, uh, I'm writing fanfic about all the stuff you're talking about now. And I was like, that's quite funny. Oh, really? Terms, yeah, like a, about the coronavirus and trauma as a result of it and trauma coming up from it and trying to resolve it and what to build after all of it. And I was just like, gosh. We're all on the same, or we're both on the same page there. Yeah, that's that's... perfect. Yeah, I can't wait to read it. (laughs) For me, I turn to art for comfort. Like I turn to either books, mostly books, but also TV shows and movies and things like a lot of people are in the world right now. So I, I love that you're 
creating art to add to what's existing what's out there which for me I currently can't do I can't like that artistic part of me is just shut down and it's like gone for a really long nap so I'm like nope I can't do this I need some time and like I'm like sort of yeah pushing myself into this podcast which seems less like it seems like a different part of my brain than my writing children's books part of the brain which I'm still not ready to do that thank you for having me on your show thank you so much for being on this podcast and being a part of my project and it was just such a fantastic conversation I think I really enjoyed well catching up with you but also it's this very hyper focused specific thing and I think I learned a lot from our conversation and I hope our listeners will as well thank you so much for being a part of this conversation thank you You've been listening to our episode on representations of dyspraxia and autism in Doctor Who. Thank you, Robert, for so generously sharing your experiences and perspectives on the podcast. You can find Robert's short story in STEM, an anthology of writing and art by Autistic People, published by Unbound Press and edited by Lizzie Huxley-Jones. His piece is a story about meeting a seal who pretended to be a human, then finding out that she was better at it than him. I'd also highly recommend Uncanny Magazine's special issues about disability, Disabled People Destroy Science Fiction, and Disabled People Destroy Fantasy. Both issues have a wide range of fiction and non-fiction about different disabilities, and all the stories and essays are accessible online for free. You can find the links to both issues in the transcript. Thanks as always to Jack, who somehow manages to edit my episode in the middle of all the other things he's doing. You can now listen to Marginally Fanish on Spotify, Apple, Google or SoundCloud. I'd love to hear from you and talk to you, so any feedback, comments or critiques are very welcome. Get in touch with me on social media, leave a comment on my blog or email me at edps at leads.ac.uk. If you'd like to follow the podcast or the PhD project, visit my website marginallyfanish.org where you'll find both the podcast episodes and the blog. You can also receive updates on Facebook or Instagram at marginallyfanish or on Twitter where I'm marginalfanish. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with anyone you think will enjoy it too. Thanks for listening. Tune in again next time for all things Fanish and intersectional.